Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, senior editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, The Economist asks about the impact of technology and artificial intelligence and their implications as machines become ever more powerful in our working lives and possibly replace at least some of us. Some fear the digital revolution is doing to white-collar work what the Industrial Revolution did to blue-collar work in the 20th century, while others believe a new class of machines may simply remove many of life's burdens and improve our general quality of life and work. Well, who's right? With me to discuss the pros and cons of smarter computers is Jerry Kaplan, entrepreneur and artificial intelligence expert and author of the book Humans Need Not Apply, a guide to wealth and work in the age of artificial intelligence. Joining me too is Ryan Avent, The Economist's free exchange columnist and author of our recent special report into the digital revolution. Jerry, ever since very large computers first arrived in offices in the 60s and 1970s, people worried about them pushing out mere humans Are we more right to be concerned about that now than we were then? No. (laughs) We are in a phase where uh, a new wave of automation is going to take place, primarily driven by advances in artificial intelligence. But I think the wrong way to look at it is that they are coming for us. The right way to look at it is that it's a natural continuation and an acceleration of the same types of automation that's occurred since the Industrial Revolution. So on the one hand, it's going to make us much wealthier than uh, we are today. On the other hand, it's going to change the nature of work. And as it does so, it may be a brutal and protracted transition to a much happier and more idyllic time. Just to dig into your thought on a brutal, protracted transition, is this then qualitatively different? We know the computational power has increased exponentially. So is it a different situation to worrying about your job possibly being replaced or changed 10, 20 years ago? Is the pace of change the vector that matters here? Well, there are two factors. The first is the the pace of change, I believe, is picking up. You know, I'm at this Stanford Artificial Intelligence Lab, and I can see the actual things that are taking place. But the changes that are occurring in technology are making it possible to automate a wide variety of tasks that previously had not been subject to automation. So it's not just faster computers and more computer programs. There are some very specific things that have changed that now make it possible to automate things like being a radio host. I can hardly wait. But while I'm still here, Ryan, your report was called The Third Great Wave, which implied a difference to what has gone before. What's different? Well, I think that uh, there are a few things that are different about it. But the the most significant one is the the fact that that this exponential growth in computing power has enabled the development of something like machine intelligence, which changes the set of, uh, of tasks to which machinery can be applied. Uh, in the past, I think, in the, in the sort of the first and second industrial revolution, my perspective is that a lot of what was happening was machines were p- re- replacing uh, kind of mechanical power. In a lot of ways, we're augmenting kind of the, the, the cognitive skills uh, of the typical worker. Now what we're seeing is, is, is an increasing use of machines to do a lot of cognitive tasks. There's a program called Wordsmith, which can be used to automate uh, the writing of kind of very basic 
articles. If you go to a site like Reuters or, or the AP and, and, and look at a wire report on a, on, a, on a company's financials or perhaps on a baseball game or something of that nature, what you might see is, is a piece that has, at least it's in its initial form, been written by an algorithm effectively, which draws on pieces of data that are presented in a regular fashion and combines it in a way that uh, with words that, that people find readable. And it's kind of extraordinary. It's scary for us in the business that we're in. These sorts of things are only going to become more sophisticated with time. But I wondered whether you both really agree on what kind of jobs and what kind of people are most affected, because there's a a famous study, which I think is cited in Ryan's report as Fry and Osborne, which I think says something like just under 50% of jobs as they exist now in the United States are ripe for this kind of disruption. Where does most pressure come? Well, the the answer is uh, both intellectual and physical tests that are, I would describe them as repetitive, routine, and very well-defined. The, that's the task they'll be automated. <clears throat> but the, the thing to understand is the uh, Fry and Osborne study uh, was a very objective and meticulous methodology, but it was, in my view, targeted at the wrong level. It was what jobs are subject to automation when, in fact, that's not what automation does. You don't roll in a robot and roll out a person. What happens is we build systems, either mechanical robotic systems or uh, program- programmatic systems, that simply automate tasks. So the question is, what tasks are involved in your job? So uh, everybody from, uh, like, let me take lawyers as an example. A lot of the work that they do, a lot of work that all experts do is routine. You know, there's simple contracts that they may do. Uh, Ryan was talking about the press releases. Well, it's not any press release, any any summary of those things. It's certain very well-structured things, sports scores, financial press releases. So to the extent that people were engaged in that activity, you can look at it as an increase in productivity. They no longer need to do that. They can focus on the higher level kinds of tests and write the type of articles that that Ryan writes. Uh, But one person's productivity increase is another person's pink slip, as we say in the U.S. It's you're out of a job. So you just need fewer people to get that particular work done. So when we think of the robots as coming to take our jobs, we're framing the problem wrong. And the answer to that is, you know, lock the door and go get yourself a taser and uh, that's not really what it's about. Uh, what it's about is we're automating and improving productivity, needing less people and changing the skills that are necessary and also changing the types of jobs there are going to be. So uh, the right answer is we need to find ways to retrain people. Our educational system as it relates to our uh, uh, employment system is disconnected in a way that has to be repaired. To follow a bit onto what Jerry was just talking about, I think just as he says, it's not just about bringing in a robot and, and, and kicking out a person. I think it's also not just about the kinds of jobs that are going to be destroyed entirely, but about the wages that are involved. And so if you have a lawyer who suddenly can use uh, computer programs to make himself much more productive, that lawyer ends up making a lot more money uh, than he was making before, and he was probably making a lot before. Uh, at the same time, on the low end of the spectrum, you you have a, a, a big pool of workers that might be able to hang on to their jobs, but only by... Uh, accepting really low rates of pay that make it uneconomical to to bring in the robot systems. The truth is that Karl Marx was right. The the, uh, substitution of capital for labor is a losing proposition for the workers. And the problem is that the people who are making the, who are going to get the benefits are those that have the capital and can make the investment in the new technology. We're seeing it right here today. And so there's this great sucking sound. It's a redistribution of wealth upwards. And that isn't necessarily good for society. And interestingly enough, all the wealthy people that I know agree with that. This is terrible. We have to do something about it. That doesn't mean they want their money taken away. 
uh, we need to find better ways to change the system to tilt it in in a direction that's much more egalitarian. Well, well, look then as we come towards the end to the to the upside, have either of you seen examples of changes that are being made that you think do actually begin to deal with this or chart a more hopeful direction than simply wages are going to be depressed, computers are going to take your job and that you may end up rather poorer than you hoped even with your college degree? For heaven's sake, Ryan, help us out. There are lots of upsides to, to, to the things that are happening. I mean, one of the, the big ones is that a lot of important stuff costs less than it used to. Um, and we see this at electronics, especially, you know, in, I mean, people in emerging markets are able to carry around a supercomputer in their pocket. And that allows them to do all sorts of things they, they weren't able to do before. Uh, and we might hope that as more of this technology is used in medicine and education, those things will become cheaper, too. And so even if wages aren't going up, quality of life might be going up. Jerry. Well, uh, that's a good way to look at it. It's very optimistic. But the, um, uh, these are really policy issues. This is the thing. We're not, the, the, the economy is not a, some kind of naturally occurring object. We design it. There's this great myth, particularly in the U.S., that if we just get the government out of the way, that the free market will solve this problem. Well, it was solved in ancient Egypt. Uh, the pharaoh literally owned everything. Everybody worked for the pharaoh, and if he wanted a tomb to take him to the afterlife in a nice style, he could send 10,000 people for 25 years to build a nice coffin for himself. That system was stable for 4,000 years. So the question is, do we want to have that kind of a system, or do we want to have a system that uh, is more like the way things were about 40 or 50 years ago, at least in the U.S., where the difference between being wealthy in the town where I lived and being less wealthy, you had a color TV if you were wealthy and black and white TV if you weren't. But everybody went to the same public school. And that kind of a world will have the same rise in standard of living. It's just that the uh, benefits of that rise in standard of living will be distributed much more widely. I'd love to get from both of you thought on a job that you think won't exist in 20 years' time and one that you think still will. The easy one, and I'm sure I'm, I'm stealing from Jerry here, but I think the easy one to say won't exist as a driver, either of a, you know, buses, cars, trains. I think it's been extraordinary how quickly progress on driverless technology has, has proceeded. One that will exist, professional athletes. But that, that isn't a great model, I think, for most workers because it says that you know, if you have a very particular set of skills and a very particular market that serves you know, a very uh, small set of individuals, then, then you can have economic success. But that's not extendable to everyone. I'm retraining right now. Jerry? Ryan has uh, kind of picked the low-hanging fruit on the uh, easy jobs, but I'll pick another one, which is low-hanging fruit. The fact is that a lot of agricultural work, uh, which just involves picking and uh, selecting and things like that is a tremendous wave of automation coming and a lot of investment that I'm seeing in the Silicon Valley right now into that area. Agricultural work, which believe it or not has gone from 80% of the U.S. population in 1800 and now is under 2%, is about to fall probably by another order of magnitude. Now, on the positive side, there's all kinds of new jobs that are being created. Uh, I have uh, two kids that just got their first jobs. Neither of those jobs existed 10 years ago. One of them does social media promotion for restaurants. Uh, the other one is working at a company called Udacity, which is an online education company. Didn't exist 10 years ago. We may find that uh, Bitcoin mining, which is a colorful term, may actually replace auditing, which, believe it or not, those two things are very closely related. So the, the future highly respected, highly compensated auditors that you see today at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers may be replaced by uh, new companies that uh, where people are actually mining bitcoins and doing what's called validating the blockchain. 
So Bitcoin miner is your bet. Professional athlete was Ryan's. <laughs> Take your pick, people. Uh, Jerry Kaplan, Ryan Event, thank you both very much. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, your still on virtual host, Anne McElvoy, in London. This is The Economist. The Economist.